for today we're talking about Christology, and then Dustin will talk about the Holy Spirit next week. So we will have covered the Godhead by the end of next week. But this morning it's all about Christ. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the deity of Christ, we're going to look at the humanity of Christ, and then we're going to look at the work of Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and start with the deity of Christ. Millard Erickson, I mentioned I've been um, using his work on systematic theology as sort of a basis, simply meaning it's kind of points in a direction, and then Dustin and I are kind of working um, through different systematic theologies and a lot of our own Bible study and stuff. But Millard Erickson said this on his introduction to the chapter on the deity of Christ. He said, one of the most controversial topics of Christian theology is the deity of Christ. It is at the same time one of the most crucial. It lies at the heart of our faith, for our faith rests on Jesus actually being God in human flesh and not simply an extraordinary man, albeit the most unusual person who ever lived. So, what do we mean when we talk about the deity of Christ? Well, in a nutshell, it means that he's God. One and the same. In our study of the Father, we looked at the Trinity We looked at the Holy Spirit, we looked at God the Father, we looked at God's nature as being one God in three persons. We said that God exists in those three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What that meant was they're not just some different manifestations. It's not like God shows up as a Father sometimes and then he puts on his Son hat and shows up as the Son or comes out as his force in the Holy Spirit. They are three distinct persons that make up one God. A hard concept to get our head around. People object to that because they say the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. It doesn't matter whether the word appears in the Bible or not. The Bible describes God as one God in three persons. And we accept that. And so what it means for Jesus to be deity is that as the second person of the Trinity, he is 100% God, sharing all of God's attributes, character traits, etc. He's equal to the God the Father and the Holy Spirit. But he is a unique individual person. We're going to look at six different proofs of that, of that today, and I will start off by saying I make no apology for using the Bible as our proof. So we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at the six proofs coming from the Scripture that reveal Jesus' deity. The first one is his miraculous birth. Look at Luke chapter 26 with me. Luke chapter 26. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 1. Verse 26. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, we have the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary, starting in verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel gave that sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. And a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. This is a woman who had not engaged in sexual relations with Joseph yet. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of situation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus." And he will, he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. 
And behold, even your relative Elizabeth, who has conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren, is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible for God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondservant of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We refer to this as the Immaculate Conception, from my Catholic background. It's proof of Jesus' divinity. Why? Because of his miraculous birth. Notice in verse 32, it says that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Verse 35, it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called, what? The Son of God. That's exactly what Isaiah said would happen. Isaiah actually said, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which translates to, what? God with us. Emmanuel. So the first proof of Jesus' divinity goes all the way back to his birth. It was a miraculous birth. Young woman, hadn't had any kind of relationships with a man. The Holy Spirit comes upon her. She conceives as a result of that miraculous event and ultimately bears a child. Proves his deity. How about a second proof? Well, turn to Matthew chapter 3 with me. Matthew chapter 3. The second proof of Jesus' divinity is God's proclamation. It's what God said about him. Look at Matthew chapter 3. Jump down to verse 16 with me. This is Jesus' baptism. And you all remember this. When Jesus was baptized, as he's coming up out of the water, says verse 16, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens. Who do you suppose that is? A voice out of the heavens, that's God the Father, says of Christ, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son. So God himself, as the second proof, declared Jesus to be God. God's Son. And we're going to see in a little bit that God's Son and God are, it's as much like we would think. If I have a son or a daughter... They are just that. My son or daughter, they share a nature with me. And the same thing is true with Jesus being the Son of God. And so we have not just his miraculous birth as proof, but we also have God's declaration. This is my son. And he said it audibly so that all those around could see. How about a third proof? The third proof, we're going to see a lot of these, are the claims that Jesus made about himself. It was interesting. It's often said by critics that Jesus never proclaimed to be God. What they mean by this is that he did not utter the words, the exact words, I am God. That's what they expect. And because Jesus didn't say, I am God, just like that, in those exact words for them, therefore, he never claimed to be God. I was watching a video not too long ago by a relatively famous online pastor, which means he's simply somebody who put that title on himself, puts a collar on, and makes YouTube videos and TikTok videos and calls himself a pastor and he's got a following. And one of his videos was that Jesus never claimed to be God. And he makes claims just like I said. He never said, I'm God. And what that completely does is it ignores all the claims that Jesus did make about himself that declared him to be God. We're going to look at some of those claims. One is he referred to God as his Father. I want you to turn to John chapter 5 with me. John chapter 5. What's interesting about this 
is that it was not common for Jews to refer to God as their father. In fact, it was somewhat offensive to do that. They did not typically refer to God as their father. In fact, that got Jesus in trouble because he did that. Over 150 times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to God as his father. And again, that was not something the Jews did. It stood out. It got him in trouble because they understood Jesus' claim to be to have God as his father that made him equal to God. That's the way they viewed it, which is why it was so offensive to them. But John chapter 5, look at verses 17 through 18. Jesus says, But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. In other words, just like my father. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I thought Jesus didn't make any claims that he was God, according to the critics. But these people certainly understood that he was doing just that. When Jesus says that God is my Father, the Jews interpreted that, like we see right here, as Jesus claiming to be equal with God. Another thing he did was he actually identified himself as the Son of God. That's another claim that he made. Look at John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world... This is Jesus speaking, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, Jesus didn't say right in that particular instance, I am the Son of God, but we know, reading the text, that he's referring to himself. He refers to himself here, in the third person actually, as the Son of God. He did something similar when he was... Preparing to heal Lazarus, John chapter, or um, um, Lazarus, look at John chapter, you don't have to turn there, but John 11, 4. When Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Once again, Jesus was referring to himself when he went to heal Lazarus, and he basically says, Lazarus is going to be healed, not necessarily for his own benefit, but for the glory of God and for the glory of God's Son. In other words, for my glory. So the question, when they say, or the comment, that Jesus did not make claims about being God are wrong. Jesus identified himself as God's son. He identified God the Father as his father. Think about this, even at his crucifixion. The Jews answered Pilate. This is John chapter 19. The Jews answered Pilate. We have a law, and by that law he ought to die because, and there's what they said, he made himself out to be the son of God. They understood what Jesus was doing. They knew he was claiming something unique, not just that he was a follower of God. That's one argument I've heard from people. Oh, the idea of being a son of me meant he was simply a follower of God. That's not the way the Jews understood it. They understood that claim as being equal to God. We also have all these other instances where others referred to Jesus as the Son of God. And he didn't deny it. Think about Satan and the demons. Matthew Matthew 4, they referred to him as the Son of God. They recognized who he was. Martha, John chapter 11, referred to him as the Son of God. The high priest in the Sanhedrin referred to him as the Son of God in Matthew chapter 26, in kind of a mocking sense. Even the crowd at his crucifixion said he claimed to be the Son of God. That's why they wanted him crucified. And so another claim that Jesus makes about himself And a claim that others make about him was that he is the Son of God, which equates him with God. Not just some follower, 
that makes him, as an earlier passage said, equal to God himself. How about another claim? He claimed to be one with God the Father. Turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, look at verse 24 and following. In fact, if you've got a New American Standard version of the Bible, this section is probably even labeled, Jesus asserts his deity. Starting at verse 22. At the time of the feast of the dedication took place in Jerusalem, it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews were gathered around him and they were saying of him or to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, there it is again, they testify of me. But you do not believe me because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, once again, who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand or out of the Father's hand. I and what? The Father are one. Look what happened immediately following that. Verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. He wasn't simply saying, I'm kind of like the Father. You know, much like we might claim we're kind of like Jesus. We're little Jesuses, right? Little Christians. No. They didn't understand it that way. They wanted to stone him for blasphemy because he claimed to be God. By saying, I and the Father are one. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we don't stone you. But for blasphemy, because you, being a man, look at this, make yourself out to be God. So another claim that Jesus made was that he and the Father were one. They were equal. John chapter 14 says, Jesus said this, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him, and you have seen him. Why? Because you had seen Jesus. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to them, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show me the Father? Once again, Jesus claiming that he and God the Father are one. Now what he means there is one in essence, one in character, one in divine nature, one of the Godhead, three parts of the Trinity. I'll just rattle some of these off. The last claim, if you will, that I want to look at is a multiple of claims. And I'm going to phrase it this way. He claimed divine prerogatives. What do I mean by that? Jesus claimed things that only God himself could really claim. They were godly prerogatives. One is he claimed he could forgive sins. That's Mark chapter 2, verse 5. Only God can forgive sins. Remember the story where he healed the man and told him, get up and walk and... Jews had a problem with that. And he's like, which is easier? <laughs> you know, get up and walk or your sins are forgiven. All right? Um, only God can forgive sins. Jesus took that prerogative and forgave sins. He claimed that he would judge the world. Only God should be able to judge the world. But in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and following, Jesus said, he will be the one who judges the world. In fact, we know that at the great throne judgment, I've been studying Systematic there. I've been studying um, eschatology lately in preparation for our last two messages now. <laughs> Going to take two. Um, Jesus is the one who judges. We as Christians sit and face him at the Bama seat and then at the end of the world when he separates the sheep and the goats. That's Jesus who judges. That was his prerogative. But it's a godly prerogative. A divine prerogative. No man can claim that. Jesus did. He claimed that the 
Sabbath was his. He was Lord of the Sabbath in Mark chapter 2. Well, wait a minute, the Sabbath is for the Father, isn't it? But no, it's for the Godhead. That's why the Sabbath, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He claimed that his word was as authoritative as Scripture. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verses 21 and following. In other words, to be able to claim that what he was saying was as authoritative as Scripture was a godly prerogative. No man can claim that. This is inspired by God. The Old Testament was God's word, and the Jews would have understood that. And so when he made the claim that what he was saying was as authoritative as this, it equates him with the one who wrote this. Again, a godly prerogative. He claimed that he's eternal, John chapter 3. Only God is really eternal. Now you may say, well, what about us? Well, we are eternal from the point of birth forward. God is eternal, past, present, and future. And so when Jesus claimed to be eternal, that's exactly what he was referring to. That's only a claim that a God can make. And yet Jesus made that claim. He also claimed that he could give eternal life in John chapter 5. Again, only God, the one who created life, can give eternal life. And yet Jesus said, I can give eternal life. So all of these claims, forgiving sin, judging the world, Lord of the Sabbath, speaking scripture, being eternal, forgiving sins, all of those things are divine prerogatives and Jesus claimed them all for himself. Did Jesus claim to be God? Absolutely Maybe not in those three words, I am God, but in almost everything else, he claimed to be God. The critics that ignore that are not familiar enough with this or completely reject what it says. You know, it's almost like when you're raising your kids and, you know, you tell them, clean up the dishes when you're done eating. And they clean the plate, but they don't wash the cup and the silverware. They don't pick up their napkins. And you say, why didn't you? Well, you said... Clean up the dishes. You didn't say everything. What's well, a ridiculous argument, is it not? It's the same thing here when they say, Jesus never claimed to be God. That's bogus. Look at all the things we just talked about. He was one with the Father. He took all these prerogatives. He claimed to be God's Son. All of these things, Jesus did indeed claim to be God. Maybe one of the reasons he just didn't come right out and say it in a short little phrase is because some things should be worked for. It's much like parables. What did Jesus do with parables? You know, he talked in parables sort of to weed people out, you know, make them listen a little bit. Let's not make it easy necessarily. And so he forces us to look at these things and evaluate them and go, yes, this indeed was God. So that's the third proof are the claims that Jesus made about himself. How about our fourth proof of Jesus's divinity? Well, it's as simple as this. He accepted worship. That makes sense because we're not supposed to worship anyone who's not God. In fact, the whole Old Testament is filled with condemnations for worshiping anything other than God. Whether it's creation, or whether it's things made with hands, like idols. We've got a number of examples of this. One of them is the Magi in Matthew chapter 2. When they come, what do they do? They actually go to worship him, and they do just that. They even bring him gifts. How about the blind man, John chapter 9? Look at John chapter 9, verse 38. I'll start with verse 35. You'll notice, too, that if you've got an NASB translation of the Bible, you may also notice the heading of this section. Jesus affirms his deity, because that's what he's doing here. Now, obviously, that's not inspired, but people who translated the New American Standard recognize that this is exactly what Jesus is doing here, affirming his deity. What happens? Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said... Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, that was Jesus' favorite phrase for himself. It's actually funny because it's a reference to deity because the Son of Man is from back in Daniel and it was a way of describing God's Son coming. 
And so it's funny, we think, oh, son of man is a proof that he's human. No, it's a proof that he's God. A little bit reversed there. And so he says, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, who is he, Lord, and may I believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he did what? He worshipped him, and why did he worship him? He believed that he was deity. And what did Jesus do? He accepted it. Doesn't rebuke him. I'm, I'm, it's interesting. I think about the angel when John is in the book of Revelation and um, he bows down to worship this angel. And he tells him, no, no worship me. Well, if Jesus wasn't God, he should have said, no, 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 don't worship me. But he completely accepts it here. The disciples also worshiped him. Look at Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, verses 30, verse 33. This is after Jesus had walked on the water and then Peter is out there and Peter's like, Lord, tell me to come to you. And the Lord says so and Peter loses faith and gets a little freaked out and falls into the waves and Jesus rescues, rescues him, pulls him up. And you jump down to verse 33. And those who were in the boat, notice what they did, worshipped him and then they made a declaration of deity. You are certainly God's son. So the disciples recognized him as Deity. Why? Because he accepted worship. You can turn here on your own, but Matthew chapter 28, the woman who went to the tomb after Jesus' resurrection says that they also worshipped him. Why? Because they recognized him as deity. And so the fourth proof of Jesus' divinity is his acceptance of worship. Fifth proof, how about the miracles that Jesus performed? John wrote in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, Therefore many signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these have been written, what? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Why did John record the miracles that he did in his book? He tells us right here. So that you can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John saw the miracles that Jesus performed as proving his divinity, and he wanted his readers to be convinced of that as well. So he recorded those miracles. The Gospels record over 40 miracles performed by Jesus. Everything from healing the sick, to raising the dead, controlling nature, turning water into wine, multiplying food, calming the storm, walking on water, even casting out demons. All of these miracles were designed to show Jesus' control and dominance, his authority over every aspect of God's creation, which is why we have the breath of these things. What I just rattled off, that's deity. His miracles were divine to show that that was the case. When we get into the miracles that are performed by the apostles and others in the book of Acts, they always attribute those to Christ, not to themselves. Jesus never attributed his miracles to other things. So each one of these things were designed, each one of these miracles were divine to reveal the divinity of Jesus. Probably the greatest miracle, though, was his resurrection. Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was, get this, declared the Son of God by what? By the power of the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. What did the resurrection of Jesus Christ declare? Declared that he was God. Greatest miracle. What's interesting about that is that it's something that the scriptures tell us Jesus did himself. 
He says that he was able to lay down his own life and to take it up again. John chapter 2. Um, Jesus was able to not only give up his own life, but to take up his own life. Now, we find elsewhere that all three of the Godhead were involved with the resurrection of Christ. Acts chapter 2 says that the Father raised him. That's Acts chapter 2 verse 24. 1 Peter chapter 3.18 says that the Spirit was involved with the resurrection. And then John chapter 2. Um, and I think chapter 10 even, says that Jesus himself was a part of the resurrection, raising himself. Interesting how that all works. Kind of reflects back on Genesis chapter 1 when God said, let us make, and all three are involved with creation, and then we see that in the New Testament as well. What's the sixth and final proof that we have of Jesus' resurrection? I'm going to say that it's the explicit declarations by the Bible. About Jesus. In other words, the Bible itself does make explicit declarations about Jesus being God. John chapter 1. It all begins this way with John's Gospel. John chapter 1. In the beginning was what? The Word. We know in the context that Word is a reference to Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And what does it say next? And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. You cannot have a more definitive statement that Jesus Christ is God than what John records here. He was there with God in the beginning. He was not only with God, but he was God. Amen? That's right. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Look at just the first three verses. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. That's definitive. He is the exact representation of God because he's God. Second Peter chapter 1. Verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant of the Apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same as ours by the righteousness of, notice what he says about Jesus here, the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter declares Jesus to not only be Savior, but to be our God. Not just the Son of God, but our God. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the sixth and final proof is that the Bible declares Jesus, beyond any reasonable doubt, in direct language, specific language, that He is God. And so we have these six proofs. There's no question that Jesus is the Son of God. So what about His humanity then? Because there are some who say, well, yeah, He was deity, but He wasn't really human. There are others that say, well, He was human, He really wasn't deity. Well, as we've already shared at the very beginning of this time, he is 100% God, but he is also 100% human. So what do we mean by that? Well, John chapter, four, or John chapter 1 verse 14, it already said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So after he said the word was with God, the word was God, he basically then comes down into verse 14 and says, and that word became flesh and he dwelt or walked among us. In order to do that, he had to have a physical body. 
There are theophanies in the Old Testament where he appeared in physical form, but those weren't the same thing. Those are where he took the form. But in this case, we're told that he actually became flesh. So we also mean that he didn't lack any of the essential elements of humanity. He was 100% God and he is 100% man. That's what we mean. Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Partook of what? Flesh and blood. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And so what the author of Hebrews tells us here is that because we are human, we are made of flesh and blood, our Savior, Jesus Christ, also had to partake of flesh and blood. He had to become 100% human. So what do we mean by Jesus being human? That he is 100% human. He is like us in every respect except one. And that's sin. But that's not nature. You may find that a little puzzling. If you think about Adam and Eve, were Adam and Eve 100% human before they sinned? Yeah, so sin is not part of human nature. It's something that was we did. Okay? We talk about the sin nature. It's like this beast, as God describes it in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain. But you can be 100% human without having a sinful nature. And again, that's proven with Adam and Eve. Before the fall. That's Jesus. 100% human. The only thing that's different between him and us is he didn't have a fallen nature. He didn't sin. But he's 100% man. So he was just like you and me. Now, what are the proofs of this? There's three of them I'm going to talk about. The first proof is, again, it goes right back to his birth. He didn't suddenly, all of a sudden, appear on earth as a fully human grown man. It's not like he just walked into town one day and said, I'm here. I'm a man, right? His conception was supernatural, but everything about his birth was normal and natural. Did you catch that? His conception was supernatural, but his birth and everything else about it was natural. I'm going to read these to you. He was conceived in a woman in a woman's womb, just like we are. Luke chapter 1, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a child, and you will name him Jesus. So he had a normal gestation, if you will. He went through the normal nine months of that, Luke chapter 2, verse 6, and it came about that while they were there, the days were completed. Nine months of growing inside the womb of Mary had been completed, and it was now time for her to give birth. Even when it came to that, he was born just like every other human, Luke chapter 2, verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So while his conception was supernatural, his birth and every aspect of his gestation, his development inside the womb, all that was normal and natural just like every other human being. Again, he didn't just show up all of a sudden as a fully grown human being. You know what? He even experienced childhood. We know that because he was at the temple one time teaching, right? But think about this. He experienced life as a baby. That still blows my mind told in Luke chapter 2 verse 16 and they the shepherds came in haste and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and what and the baby was laying in a manger there's this little tiny ten fingered ten toed thing of flesh sitting in this little manger and that's how we started right that's how Jesus started he experienced life as a baby. He experienced life as a young child. Matthew chapter 2, verse 11 says, As they, the Magi, came into the house and saw the child. Jesus was two years old, approximately, when the Magi showed up. He was a toddler. 
wonder what that must have been like. He experienced life as a preteen. Luke chapter 2, verse 42 says, and when he became 12. So we have his conception, his birth as this little tiny baby. We have him as a toddler. We even have him as a 12-year-old preteen here. Finally, we're told that he actually grew into adulthood under the care and supervision of earthly parents. Luke chapter 2, turn there with you, if you will. Luke chapter 2, verse 51 Luke chapter 2, verse 51. Is that right? Hang on a second. Luke chapter 2, verse 51. There we go. And he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth. And look at this. And he continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Doesn't that kind of blow your mind? That Jesus would grow in wisdom and stature. Stature referring to his physical growth, wisdom to his understanding of things. Now, it kind of blows our mind. We don't know how to fit that in with deity, but that's what it tells us. We're also told elsewhere that he had to learn obedience. Don't quite know how to get my head around that, but in every respect, when we look at Jesus' birth to his growth into adulthood, everything about that was perfectly natural and experienced by every human being. That is proof of Jesus' humanity. He wouldn't have had to have been cared for by parents. As a baby, as a toddler, as a preteen, if he wasn't 100% human. I'm pretty sure that if he were just deity, he could have cared for himself even as a baby. He probably could have talked. But that's not what God chose to do. And part of it is so that he could experience what we experience. Second proof is that he lived within the experience and limitation of that humanity. We all know the Last Supper... What did he do at the Last Supper? He ate and drank. He got hungry and thirsty at times. Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, well, look at this. He even became hungry. Stomach growled. John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing all things had been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, what on the cross? I'm thirsty. And so he experienced hunger and thirst just like we do. Turn to John chapter 4. When he traveled... By foot, something else happened. John chapter 4. Jesus just didn't supernaturally transport himself places. He did what every other human at that time did. You want to go somewhere, you didn't hop on the greyhound. You walked. John chapter 4, verse 6. And notice something that happens when you walk. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well... It was about the sixth hour. Jesus experienced exhaustion, weariness, just like we do. He walked in the heat. He got tired. Mark chapter 4, verse 38, Jesus even did something else remarkable. It says, Jesus was in the stern of the ship, asleep on a cushion, and they had to wake him up. We're told God never sleeps, but Jesus slept because he was human. Why? Like the rest of us, his body needed to recharge Probably just like us for a third of the day. Why? Because he was human. That was evidence of his humanity. If he were just some apparition, if he were just sort of in the form of human flesh, he wouldn't have needed to rest because there would have been no demand on him that's placed on him by being in the flesh. We also know that he experienced sorrow. Two places where we see Jesus weeping at the death of Lazarus and then on the triumphal entry. He wept 
just like we do. He experienced grief just like we do. And so one of the things that we see with Jesus is that he lived within those limitations of being human. Turn to Matthew chapter 26. Another example. Matthew chapter 26, verse 37. We'll start at verse 36. Then Jesus came with them into a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not I, but as your will, or but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them asleep, and he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time, and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. So what's he doing here? Jesus is grieving before he goes to the cross. Why? Because of what he's going to face on the cross. Part of that would be the physical torture. We know that during this time, elsewhere in the Gospels, we're told that an angel had to come and strengthen Jesus at this time. Why? Because he's in the flesh. He could feel all that stress and agony, and it became a physical thing. We're told that he began to sweat drops of blood. Why? Because he's in the flesh. He's fully human. So everything we see in the second proof, tells us that he experienced the limitations of humanity. He must have been 100% human. The third proof is probably one of the greatest proofs, and that's his death. Because gods don't die, but Jesus did. Take a look at John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath for the Sabbath of the high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came up and broke the legs of the first man and the other two who were, or the other two who were crucified, or other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now, people say, oh, he was just sleeping here. There's the swoon theory. You know, one thing people fail to remember is these Roman soldiers that crucified people, they were absolute pros. You nailed it. They knew a dead man when they saw a dead man. So they came to Jesus. They knew that he was dead. So they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out, a sign of death. Larry, uh, Larry Lytle does a thing on the crucifixion on Easter sometimes, and he talks about that and why this happens with the water forming around the heart. Maybe Dr. Long has some insight into that, but um, it was proof that he was dead. And he who has seen this testimony, of this testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may also believe. In other words, John is saying, I know that he was dead, and you can trust me. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Aramea, being a disciple of Jesus, put a, um, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body, which you basically have is Jesus' death burial here, which again proves that he was human because gods don't die. But Jesus did. Why? Because he was in the flesh. So we have these three proofs. Now the question that we have to ask is, so how could Jesus be both fully human and fully God? 
I'm going to give you five important theological words for this. There's five important theological words that describe Jesus being both fully God and fully human. I'm just going to rip down through these for the sake of time. But the first one is the phrase called, or that's, uh, you can just write this down. I think I might have even typed it up in your notes already. Hypostatic union. That's the word that describes this union between God and man that have come together. This came out of a council back in the 300s, or I'm sorry, the 400s, called the Council of Chalcedon. They were dealing with the controversy over this very thing. Some were saying that Jesus was fully human but not fully God. Others were saying Jesus was fully God but therefore couldn't be fully human. And so like the early church did, so oftentimes they would hold a conference on it. They'd bring together all the best theologians and they would wrestle through that and they would kind of try to come up with the most precise way that they could to define exactly what the Bible taught. And so that's where many of our theological words came from. And one of them is this hypostatic union. They describe Jesus as having two natures at this council, a divine and a human, which exists in perfect and complete harmony without mixing, changing, dividing, or separating. Their words. Without mixing, changing, dividing, or separating. What this means, what this word, this phrase, hypostatic union means, is that Jesus' divine nature did not alter, lessen, or change his humanity in any way. In other words, his godly nature did not change, lessen, or alter the human nature. And likewise, his humanity did not alter, lessen, or change his divinity. It's a mouthful, isn't it? He is 100% man, 100% God. So they have this term, hypostatic union. If you can remember that, you don't have to explain the rest of it, right? You still might have to, because nobody will know that term. But that's... That's an important word because it defines for us what it means for Christ to be fully human. His divine nature did not alter, change, or, or do anything to his human, likewise the human. Somehow those two were able to come together in perfect union, perfect harmony. Now the four remaining theological terms come from our analysis of Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. You can turn there. Philippians chapter 2. This is probably one of the greatest passages that describe exactly how God became man. Okay? Starting in verse 5 of chapter 2, you look at the verses 5 and and 6. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also is in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God to be a thing to be grasped. The first phrase, or the second phrase out of our five here, is this. Condescension of Christ. The condescension of Christ. That's actually what's described here in verses 5 and 6. When we think of condescension, we think of it as a bad thing. Your, you know, words are condescending. Okay, we think of it as a negative thing. But to condescend means to basically take a position or a rank of dignity that is less or lower than your state. It's really what it means. To condescend is a positive thing. I come down to your level is the best way to describe it. If you were looking at a child and you want to talk to the child and you get down on your knees so you're at their same eye level, you're condescending. And so this first phrase, condescension of Christ, refers to what happens here in verses 5 and 6. Although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was willing to condescend, become like us, give up his rank and his status and his dignity equal to God in heaven, stepped down. Didn't mean he gave those things up. Much like I'm an adult, when I condescend and I get on my knees to talk to a child, I'm not no longer an adult, am I? 
but I'm making myself like them in that respect. That's what condescension is. The next phrase is the kenosis of Christ. That comes from verse 7, but he emptied himself. It comes from the Greek word meaning to empty. Now, scholars have debated this for centuries, for millennium. What does it mean for Jesus to have emptied himself? It doesn't mean that he gave up all these attributes. The best way to think of it is he voluntarily gave up the exercise of divine attributes. There's a difference. Giving up would make him no longer God. If he gave up all the attributes of deity, he would no longer be God. So that's not an option. But what did he do? To empty himself means that he gave up the exercise of those things. Jesus no longer read people's minds necessarily through his divine abilities, right? What he does tell us in the scriptures is that the Holy Spirit was the one who allowed him to do the things that he did. He was given things to say by the Father. He didn't say anything that the Father didn't give him to say. He was totally, completely dependent on the Holy Spirit in his human flesh. So there are times where there are things where you look at him and you think, that is an act of deity, but that was dependence on the Holy Spirit because he didn't act upon those things himself. One great example is when you know, he's looking at um, when Jesus cut off, or when, he, when, Jesus, when he was attacked in the garden, Jesus, or Peter went to cut off the ear, you know. And Jesus says, hey, put it away. Don't you realize that I could talk to my father and he'd send me these 25,000 angels that I could command? That's a great example of this. He could have done that, but he didn't. That was his prerogative, his deity, to call upon his father to say, all right, send them, send me my army. But he chose not to. He emptied himself of those things. So again, think of emptying as giving up the exercise. It's much like if I have authority to do something, I choose not to do it. Okay? You all see the, or maybe you've seen that show, um, what's it called? It's where the, where the boss or the owner of a company goes and becomes one of the employees and nobody knows that he's the boss. What's it called? Undercover. Undercover boss, you know? They're not acting like a boss, are they? They're acting like an employee. That's emptying themselves. They're giving up exercise of their abilities as the boss, the owner, to act and live within what the employees are experiencing. Let's move on to the next one. Incarnation of Christ. That's found in the second half of B. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. That's referred to as the incarnation of Christ. It refers to the act where Jesus, the eternal Son of God, takes on this human flesh. That's John chapter 1, verse 14. The incarnation means that Christ took on human flesh, and that's what's described in 7b there. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness, the nature of men. It involved both a supernatural conception, but also a natural human growth and birth. The last phrase is humiliation of Christ. Verse 8 says, He was found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the humiliation of Christ. So these words are all important because all of these words here describe what it means for Christ to be fully human, even though he was also fully God. Now let's look at the last thing here. We're running short on time, but the work of Christ. The last thing I want to look at is the work of Christ. When we talk about the work of Christ... We're referring to the roles or the functions that he fulfills. Now, those who prefer to describe what Jesus Christ's work is, when they just want to describe it in terms of his roles, they use words like prophet, priest, and potentate, which just means king. So prophet, priest, and potentate. Okay, um, That's describing the role, the role of a prophet, the role of a priest, the role of a potentate. Others like to describe them as functions, 
Um, and they use these words. Revelation, reconciliation, and rule. I kind of like that second because I think it's a little broader than just the roles um, because it gets at really the functions that Jesus accomplishes. So we also need to think of what Jesus does in terms of his work in terms of the past, present, and future. So in regard to time, I think that's what I have in your notes there, just a capital T. We have to think of what Christ's work is in regard to the past, the present, and the future. So let's look at Revelation first. We're going to rip down through these. You'll write some of these down. I'll read them to you just for the sake of time. But in the Old Testament, there are two phrases that refer to the pre-incarnate Christ showing up in what looks like human form. One is the angel of the Lord. The second is the angel of God. Now that's different than a angel of the Lord or a angel of God because most generally when it says the angel of the Lord or the angel of God, happens over 60 times, that's a reference to Christ. And we can see that in the text as you work through it. Um, the other time you see it, an angel of the Lord generally is just speaking to an angel, like maybe Gabriel or um, Michael the archangel showing up. But the angel of the Lord is generally a reference to Christ. That word angel is simply the word for messenger. So another way to think of it is that Jesus was the messenger of the Lord or of God in the Old Testament. It was his pre-incarnate ministry. He was to reveal God's purposes and plans. When Sarah is referring to the angel that came to speak to her, Genesis chapter 16, it's interesting, it refers to it as the angel of the Lord talking to her, but in verse 13, she actually refers to the angel as God. She recognizes this is not just some ordinary angel, this is God himself who's come down in human form before me. That is the pre-incarnate Christ, that was one of his ministries. Something similar in um, Judges chapter 16, you can look that up as well. When the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak tree, oak tree near Gideon, In verse 14, the angel himself identifies himself as the Lord. The Lord looked at him. It doesn't say the angel of the Lord looked at him at that point. It says the Lord looked at him, which is a reference to the angel. Again, equating this angel of the Lord as the Lord himself having come down in human flesh. Genesis chapter 13, same thing, verses 11 through 12, 11 to 13. The angel of God, as he's there physically on earth in human form, refers to himself as, I am the God of Bethel. So the angel of the Lord refers to himself as God himself. That was the pre-incarnate Christ. And so we see that throughout the Old Testament, where the pre-incarnate Christ appears in human form, and the purpose is to reveal God's purposes and plans. So his one of his roles is in Revelation. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we also see Jesus' work in Revelation, partly through his incarnation, um, John chapter 1, verses 14 and 18, that was pretty clear that he came down and walked among us in the flesh. His purpose was to reveal God the Father to us. Um, Turn to Matthew chapter 11, verse 27 with me. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to, what? Reveal Him. One of Jesus' roles in the New Testament was to reveal the Father. We were told that in Hebrews. We looked at the um, beginning of Hebrews, too, where it says that He's the exact representation. His whole purpose was to reveal the Father to us. John chapter 12, verse 47. 
I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. We see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, one of Jesus' ministries, whether it was in his pre-incarnate state or whether it was in his incarnate state here, his purpose was to reveal. To reveal truth about God, God's plan, to reveal the Father to us. So, again, one of Jesus' ministries, his works, is revelation, revealing God and his plans to us. A second work of Jesus' is reconciliation. Reconciliation, if you look up that dictionary in the English, it means to uh, mend relationships. Sometimes it's used to talk about comparing financial accounts to bring them into reconciliation with each other. But it's the idea of mending something, bringing them together. The biblical sense is restoring the relationship between us and God the Father. So, what was work, uh, Christ's work in reconciliation? Well, first thing is he accomplished reconciling us and God. In other words, he brought about reconciliation between us and God. God restored his relationship, it says, through Jesus Christ. Look at uh, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through what? Our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have the who have obtained our inheritance by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope and the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance. And you can continue on. He talks about that. But then if you come down, verse 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love towards us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved through the wrath, or from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies of God, he reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. So what was God doing in Christ? Reconciling the world to himself. So that's one of Christ's works. He not only reconciled us to God, but even reconciles creation. Reconciles creation as well. Colossians 1.20 says that God reconciled all things to himself, made peace through the blood of his cross through him. I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. In other words, God reconciled everything in his creation to himself through Christ. Romans 8.20 says, For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself might also be set free from the slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers in pains of childbirth together until now. God reconciled two things to himself. One was us, one was the rest of his creation, all through Christ. And so one of Christ's primary ministries, his works, was the work of reconciliation. So one work was revelation, second work was reconciliation. What about the third? The third is his work as ruler. The third R in our list there. In the past, he created everything. That was an element of rulership. John 1.3 says all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being. Colossians 1.16 says for that, in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, etc. Genesis 1.26 says let us create. So in the past, we see his rulership in that he created everything. It all belongs to him. And Colossians says everything is created in him, for him, and through him. That is his element of rulership in the Old Testament. In fact, one of the visions that um, was it Daniel or no, Ezekiel had was this um, picture of Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, on a throne in heaven. That was his rulership in the past. What about the present? 
Well, today we're told that he sustains everything as ruler. Colossians 1.17 He is before all things, and in him what? All things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 He is the radiance of his glory, the exact reputation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. He currently rules from heaven right now. Ephesians 1.20-23 That when God raised Jesus from the dead, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. That is Christ today, ruling in a spiritual sense from heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Matthew chapter 28, 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. His present work is ruling. The future is the same. Daniel and the book of Revelation all point to this time where Jesus Christ will reign for a thousand years on earth and then take us into eternity where he will reign forever. So we see that his third work, if you will, is this idea of rulership. And we see the past, present, and future elements of that as well. So we have as Jesus' works there, all three of those. So he's active. He's alive. Still working, still doing the very things he's done since eternity past. Still revealing, still reconciling, and still ruling. So, let's wrap this up with this. Why is all of this important to us? Well, think about the incarnation. Jesus becoming man. It is absolutely the foundation of the gospel. God sent Jesus to take on human flesh and to walk among us so that he could reconcile the world to himself. It's the only way it could have happened. Reconciliation required that Jesus be both God and man. Couldn't have been any other way. Think about it. If he wasn't human, he couldn't have died for us, because he had to be made like us. The only sacrifice for human sin is human. So he had to be human. But the problem is that no human is perfect and couldn't be a perfect sacrifice. So he had to be God, because only God could be the perfect sacrifice. And so those two things come together. So our reconciliation is dependent upon that as well. So the first point in your notes there, why it's important is it's the foundation of the gospel. The second point is that Jesus had to become man because he had to identify with us and become the only sacrifice. The third is he had to be God because that's the only way the sacrifice would be holy. It would be acceptable to him. A couple of passages you can look up on your own. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 18 explains that. So does Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 through chapter 5. All right. So, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, and still at work.